Welcome to They Just Get It. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm, and I'm excited, as I often am, to be here with my guest today, Miss Colleen Biggs. How are you, Colleen? I'm well. How are you? I am really good, and I, I want to be very honest. I believe in full transparency on the show. I am a very happy customer of yours, and you know, through the happenstance of living in Western Canada, everybody gets to meet everybody. I do love uh, love about the big small town of you know certainly Calgary and if not Alberta where we live. But you are um, one of the you're a rancher, and you own and operate TK Ranch. Yes, I am, and thank you for your support. That's lovely to to understand and know that you're. Enjoying our product. I, it's only been on my radar in probably in the last six months. I had some uh, friend of mine introduced and I was on a bit of a quest and, you know, uh, we'll maybe touch on it, but the world of new and exciting diets from keto to carnivore to stand on your head and drink water backwards and whatever it might be, <laughs> you know, and I'm, and I'm guilty. I'm always like, okay, what's going what's gonna to make me feel different or how do I deal with this thing that's going on? And through looking for high quality grass-fed meat products is how I ended up finding out about you guys. I made my first order. It was great. It was seamless. And I think well, like, so many things we're going to unpack today in terms of, you know, how you run, do what you do. But most importantly, let, let's hear what, what, what is it? What is a TK ranch? <laughs> and let's bring, let's bring our audience in on this. And then we'll kind of unpack and tell your story from there. No, that's wonderful. I really appreciate your interest and support. So, you know, TK ranch really started back in 1956 with my father-in-law. His name was Thomas Kohler Biggs, and he moved here from New York. He was a metallurgical engineer and wanted to be a cowboy. So he was brave, and if you can believe it, he headed out west and uh, worked in Banff the summer that they were filming A River of No Return with Marilyn Monroe. And he was cast in a bit part in that movie, but uh, he was there managing the horses for Brewster at that time. Um, oh, and that. And during the filming, he met an old kind of codger at a bar who said that there was some land available up in this area south of Coronation, and uh, and he thought he would go on a little trek. So he came out here and saw it and fell in love with it. And what's kind of funny is that he moved in the middle of the winter, and it was a brutal winter. And the snow, he said, when he when they met him at the train in Coronation, the neighbors came and picked him up with a team of horses, and they had to change the team three times. And that was there were no fences; the snow was so deep. And it took a long time for them just to travel the 16 or 18 miles south uh, to the ranch. And when he arrived, you know, everybody called him a greenhorn and didn't think he'd survive. But he thought that all Canadian winters were that brutally cold and long. <laughs> so uh, It's amazing what we normalize. That's very, yeah. He's clearly adapted quickly to our, uh, you know, to fitting right in. <laughs> he did. Well, he was only 27 at the time. and uh, ignorance, very, ignorance is bliss, let's be honest. Ig ignorance was bliss. And uh, so once the snow left, you know, he wanted to buy a few cows. So they said, like, where could, he asked the neighbor where a good place to buy some cattle were. And they mentioned the name Jack Hallett. So we headed over to Jack Hallett's, uh, which was just south of Fleet, which is about 70 kilometers from the ranch. And uh, met Jack. And what's more important, he met Jack's daughter, Mary. So uh, I, I, I love that. And the, and the plot thickens. Mm -hmm. The plot definitely thickened, and they were married three months later, literally. So it was uh, love at first sight, and I'm really glad because I don't know if Tom would have survived the true meaning of settling in this country because uh, Mary could rope and ride and grow a garden and cook and clean and was, you know, a true pioneer's daughter. You know, her father, Jack Hallett, was a pioneer here back in the early 1900s. He'd come from England uh, as a 17-year-old by himself and homesteaded in Saskatchewan and then had moved to kind of that fleet country, which is between Coronation and Castor. And um, he made, he was an unbelievably hard worker. 
and he broke a ton of sod. So he became a steam engineer with one of the first steam kind of tractors back in the 20s, and he custom broke a lot of sod. And that's an important point because in that process, he saw the countryside change dramatically from, you know, one of native grasslands to, you know, virtually, you know, endless farmland as far as you could see. And so in that process, he instilled a love of the wild prairie like he had seen it when he first came over from England, um, you know, where there was untouched grasslands for thousands of kilometers, you know, in every direction to something that changed dramatically. And he lived to be 99 and he wrote his memoirs about how sad he was about how things had changed so dramatically. But he instilled the love of the wild uh, prairie in his children and Mary, my husband's mom, Mary, was one of them. And she became an artist and she painted uh, unbelievably beautiful paintings of the wild grasslands and sold them all over the world. But she instilled love of the prairie also in her children and, and of course, met her match with Tom, TK, because he also loved the wild prairie. And they raised uh, five children here and really instilled the importance of protecting the last tracts of grasslands that uh, we have in, in Alberta and also in, in Canada because they're still vanishing under the plow as fast as you can imagine. There's no protection of wild grasslands and, and we live in the northern fescue grasslands. TK Ranch is right in the middle of it and there's only 4% of that particular ecoregion left in uh, the world. From your perspective, uh, Colleen, are, are, are we, is there an increased awareness? Is, again, since you and I talked even a little while back, uh, the grasslands don't seem, they certainly don't get the same notoriety or the certainly the save the trees and, you know, save save our, you know, wetlands and things like that. I don't hear grasslands being, is that something, and I, this feels like a rabbit hole we could turn a whole episode into. Is there an increased awareness around the importance of that as from an ecosystem and and how we can, you know, getting into sustainable and, you know, how you raise your animals, which we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to even around that. But is there starting to be more awareness or is it just is it is it a huge blind spot for us in your mind? It's it's a huge blind spot. I really do think, you know, I grew up, I was born in Alberta. So is my dad and my grandfather. And so we've been in Alberta for a long, long time. And when I was traveling, you know, I grew up in Edmonton and my family homesteaded north of Edmonton. And, you know, we drove to Calgary, but, you know, no one ever went east. And I'm not saying there aren't grasslands still in the eastern slopes and in southern parts of the province there are. But when you think about eastern Alberta, nobody really thinks about what's out here. And so it's not on anyone's radar. Mm-hmm. So when when I moved to TK Ranch in 1989, you know, I've got an environmentalist background. I've got a degree in wildland recreation management and have been involved in lots of different projects prior to moving here. So I was aware of loss of habitat, endangered species, endangered spaces, um, but a lot of people are, don't even know what's in eastern Alberta because it's one of the most depopulated parts of the province. Right. So kind of out, out, out of sight, out of mind. And you're right. You just, you know, when I moved here and I grew up in the east and moved here, you come across the prairies, like it, it kind of feels like there's nothing. Like you, you look out and you're like, ah, oh, it, it's just a wasteland of nothing. But that's because you're not really looking, you know, <laughs> behind you're a, not, a, la- a layer or two beyond that. <laughs> that is very true. You're not looking. And so, when I think about, like, most people have never even heard of the special areas of Alberta. Have you heard of the special areas of Alberta? Uh, No, I I will always bring my ignorance forward. No, I have not. (laughs) And and many Albertans haven't, haven't. So, the special areas are similar to a municipality, and there were originally four special areas in Alberta. I live in special area number two, then there's still special area number three and special area number four. Now, what they are is, you know, when we had the Homestead Act, um, 
that brought a lot of settlers west and they were given they were allowed to get a 160 acres as long as they lived there for six months of the year and they broke 30 acre i think it's 30 acres you know correct me if oh I'm interesting wrong. okay 30 and you, you and, get 160 if you put six months in and, and you but you turn 30 into quote-unquote like tradi- like farming land in the, in the new way it's yeah and, and it's and you have to live on it for six months of the year for three years continuously until you can claim to um, claim that land as deeded land as your own. So there are some rules around the Homestead Act. So, you know, they came out here and where we live, we're in the northern tip of Palliser's Triangle. So when Palliser came out and did his surveys back, I believe, in the 1700s, you know, he basically said this area was unfit for human habitation because it was so dry. So, but you know, the few years that homesteaders came out, there were a lot of wet years in the in the in the teens and the twenties of of the last century, and so people came out and they started farming, and things were good until they weren't, and that was the dirty thirties. So when the drought started uh, in the dirty thirties, it was unbelievable. There were people on almost every quarter section in the special areas. Um, and they couldn't make a living. There was no water. It wasn't raining. They couldn't water their gardens. They couldn't hunt virtually. You know, there was no uh, wild animals left. So a lot of these people started starving to death. And it was really important. Um, the government started to notice the, that people weren't paying their taxes because they didn't have any income. And it was a very, very, very difficult time. People, I mean, I read all the old homestead books, you know, that you can often find in every every town. And people were eating gophers and grasshoppers or whatever they could find just, to, just survive. to survive. Yeah. And so what happened was that the Special Areas Act was passed in 1936. And what that did is it offered people who'd homesteaded in these areas to give their land back to the crown in lieu of taxes. And so this country had about 29,000 people living in it. And uh, in a matter of a very short time, there was only 5,000 left. And that's really the, the population has stayed there since then. Oh, that's interesting. It's just a story you don't, I, again, you don't hear, unless probably you go out and search that one out. That's so interesting how an event completely changed the cards for where things would be today if that hadn't happened. Well, it's really, and, and it's very true. And so when the special areas was uh, was created to manage this land base, um, it had a real conservation easement because the land blew. I mean, you just have to go east of where we are on TK Ranch and you can still find six, eight foot drifts of dirt that blew during the dirty 30s because this mm-hmm. land was farmed and then it blew and then there was very no- well, nothing Well, that is left. the reality. Once you take away the that that grass layer on the top that holds everything in place and you expose that soil, the erosion and all the factors that, again, are not natural in the course of that land just sitting there exposed sets that up to happen. Well, and what's also important to understand is that, uh, you know, the last glaciers that were here, they pushed all the topsoil into the United States. It all went south. And so we only have a very thin layer of topsoil here, half an inch to an inch. A lot of what we have is called solenectic soils. And so it's hard pan flat. And so when the, the grasslands evolved... You know, there's not a lot of soil here. It's really not suitable. And we, this kind of will lead into your plant-based uh, conversation perhaps later, is that this, this land is really not suitable for growing grain crops. And it evolved. That's interesting that it's got such a thin layer. I grew up in the Shadigy Valley in Quebec, which hundreds of years ago was swampland and highly fertile. And there was a good depth. You could get down to that hard pan, but it was more like 12 to 16 inches or 18. Like you'd set, you'd set the plow to make sure you didn't dig into that, but it was way down. Like you had a really hefty layer to deal with uh, uh, as far as uh, compared to your inch to half an inch. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. And so, um, so this whole ecoregion evolved with, uh, so with these grasslands and wild grasses and forbs over millennia after the, uh, the glaciers left and they, and it evolved in a, in a very interesting, um, ecological balance with large ungulates that were bison and i mean i think they say that there were 60 million bison in the great plains of course not 60 million in alberta but in the right. entire great plains of north america and uh and so these grasslands evolved with fire and with um bison and of course herds of elk and antelope and and so they got used to being grazed and then the animals would leave and they would recover and then they would come back. And, you know, the, the natives like well, the, the black animals foot, directly contributed to the cycle, right? <laughs> absolutely. They're an, a very, very important part of it. And that's an important uh, part of your plant-based agenda. Also, uh, in when we talk about it, because when bison were virtually uh, driven to extinction, they're not extinct. I know I get in trouble every time I say that. There are still But domestic- compared to 60 million roaming free, I think I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that, but yeah, I'm, I'm backing you on that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you still can find bison that are domestically raised in Canada, so everybody out there, and there are some wild herds in Elk Island and that have been introduced but to Grasslands National Park. we changed the National dynamic Park. in which they, they played an, an impact and an effect of the ecosystem that they lived in. Well, we just have to look at this landscape is covered with fences, so nothing really unless you talk about wild herds. Um, like the elk that they introduced into the Suffield block uh, are really wa- yep. wandering wild, right? So, so it's really important to understand the cattle replaced bison in that ecosystem. So that we, when we talk about conserving um, this endangered ecosystem, that's the northern fescue grasslands or whatever grassland ecosystem you want to pick, um, they play an integral role in, role in keeping that grassland healthy. And people go, well, why? Why can't we just leave wild animals? Well, you know, there aren't enough wild animals to graze the grassland sustainably it anymore. Because we affect it, because we kind of broke the cycle, right? We, we intervene as humans often do and leave, and leave things in tatters. It, well, it, well, exactly. And so, mm-hmm. and, and people go, well, what'll happen if you remove cattle from the landscape? Because that is all part of the plant-based agenda is just get rid of all the ranchers and, and just farm everything and grow, um, you know, plant-based products to feed the world. Well, you know what? That might work in some of the areas that there's topsoil A and B. What about all the the tens of thousands of wild species that also rely on these grasslands being healthy? I mean, the beauty the beauty of where I live, I look out my window and I see uh, threatened species almost every day. Species that people that live maybe in Calgary or Edmonton they never see. Right. Um, You know, we've had burrowing owls here that are you know virtually gone from the landscape. Uh, everywhere we have ferruginous hawks we have long-billed curlews i mean i can go on there are lots you know sprags pippets are you know that's the i walk out my door in the summer and i i mean it's unbelievable the number of sprags pippets that we have here but you never hear about them in other parts of the province because they're gone and that's because we have moved towards monoculture farming and and that means you know destruction of uh, green space or even uh, wildlife corridors between a lot of farmland. That I'm not trying to pick on farmers. This is not about uh, vilifying farmers. It's it's about conserving endangered grasslands and understanding suitable practices for one ecoregion are not suitable for another. And all things are not created equal. I I wrote on Facebook the other day about that. Is that everyone thinks? Oh no, you know we can grow soy here, so why can't we grow soy there? Well, you know, you just you just can't. Not unless you turn it into a petri dish where it's all artificial and it's the only way it's going to grow is with A, irrigation and B, tons of chemical inputs because it's just not suitable for growing that kind of an intensive um, 
monoculture crop because lots of people go, well, we want to grow plant-based, but then they don't think about what that means and what is no, the trade-off. I think you're right. I think the media does a really good job of these high-level statements and kind of blanket overviews. And you're right. I grew up in a, I grew up in an environment where you know corn was heavily subsidized, and you know I lived on a farm where crop rotation and you know you'd only use so many years of corn because of the, the how much it depleted the soil. But yet the government was incentivizing a certain behavior that was just causing those farmers. And again, I'm not faulting anyone. They were you know sometimes be careful where you hang the incentive, right? It, it creates behavior. And every year was more fertilizer, more chemicals, more problems with, with certain worms and parasites because there wasn't breaking the cycle. But yet the compensation was leading the farmers to do that because that's how they could get the best return on investment out of that acre of land, even though that land was getting beat up year after year after year. Well, and that is what is happening in a lot of monoculture environments now. And I mean, um, you just have to take a walk. And that's what I tell people is just to go take a drive out in the country and see how much wild grassland that you see. Uh, there's not a lot of it. You have to go a long distance from Calgary to finally get into the grasslands. I know I had some ladies asking me where they could see snowy owls um, when I was at our facility by Calgary. And I went, well, you know, you might see the odd snowy owl here, but most you're going to have to go north and, and towards Drumheller and even further east. I said, we've got lots of them out on the native grasslands here because we have a lot of wildlife and that's what they require. And I'm not saying there aren't rodents and things that they can certainly uh, hunt in agricultural mm -hmm. fields. But the reality is, is that, you know, a lot of people don't talk about uh, the destruction that happens to the environment with monoculture farming, you know, the birds, the insects, the mammals that are killed in that process. And I mean, that is just, that's just a part of it. And again, that's not to vilify farmers. It's not their fault that it's just a part of the process. No, and I think it's, it's, I think, yeah, it's good to bring the perspective of also, you know, we've all watched those movies. We've all seen those, those videos or those, you know, kind of, you know, um, influential pieces that show you these very negative, um, Beef and beef lots, uh, pigs, Seed lots, farming, yep. chicken, yep. for sure. You know, where I go on your website and I read about not only environmental sustainability, but I read about animal welfare. So I also want to be careful, you know, just to, to put the position, like there's a whole bunch of things maybe not being done well. And, you know, what I really loved about you guys is not only is there an environmental sustainability element, but you're also looking at animal welfare and that stewardship of those animals to create that balance. So what we're talking about is monoculture on one side, but also not overlooking that there are some practices around around animal welfare that are not being followed on a global s scale either. <laughs> I, I agree that, you know, I mean, it's really important to talk about the tipping point because ultimately, um, my belief is that it's, it, all of this is in the hands of consumers, <laughs> is that we have as a society, um, and it's not just consumers, but cheap food policies are, are entrenched in and everything, you walk into the grocery store, you know, it's the lowest price is the law. And what a lot of consumers go, that's great. I can save some money. I'm going to go to XYZ big box store and I'm going to buy this brand because I can get it for such a, a lot more, a lot less money. It's kind of like, okay, well, that's great. So these big box stores, um, they rely on the whole international uh, corporate system that has commodified the whole industry around food. Food is no longer... Um, you know, a mom and pop thing. It has become traded internationally and these multinational corporations that control our food, it's about money. And so if they are competing against each other in the marketplace and you walk into a store and you see this granola bar and this granola bar and they're all three different brands, they're competing for consumers to buy that. And how are consumers judging if they all look the same? 
How does a yeah. consumer, they, they usually go to what's the cheapest product. When it comes to meat products, what people don't understand is that, I'll give you an example. Someone said, hey, you, I can buy organic ground beef at this big box store and it's only $8 a pound. And I go, well, okay, that's a product of the U.S. to begin with. And you know where it comes from? And they go, well, it comes from beef. And I go, ah, those are, it's actually coming from huge um, organic dairies that are really factory farms. Yes, they're organic. That doesn't mean that we don't have organic factory farms. Mm-hmm. And these are the cows that are no longer being used for milk production and they're organic and they're going out and that is where they're getting a lot of this uh, ground beef from for that is so inexpensive. Oh, the, the, the dark side of the food world that if you, if oh, it's scary when you start peeling back even the first chapter. Well, and that's, and that's the thing. And so when, and then people go, well, we need you. We want you to compete with that. Well, I can't. Our program is so uh, much different. We're very different in the industry. Uh, you know, it takes about 30 months for us to finish our, our cattle. And, you know, and compared to, let's say, a grain-finished uh, animal that comes out of one of these feedlots you were talking about, they are 14 to 16 months of age. They're put into a feedlot. Uh, they're usually often weaned, and then they go into the feedlot system. Not always. Sometimes they're called their background, that it's called where they don't go right away, um, but then they go into the feedlot system and they're fed a high grain ration to make them grow more quickly. And part of the reason is mm-hmm. that these feedlots are trying to keep the cost of beef down. So it, it's the feeding process that's so, so expensive. So the longer that animal is in the feedlot being fed these very expensive grain rations, you know, the more money it costs to produce that beef. And unfortunately, and this is an important point people don't often understand the beef industry is controlled by the likes of cargill and jbs they really do set the price for what producers are paid for their cattle um and they made so much money during covid so when covid hit you know the likes of cargill you know oh it was a sad story they they couldn't work they had plant closures and that's when people started to become aware of the of the real mass processed meat industry again because again like you said out of sight out of mind Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, they shut down their plants and it backlogged all these feedlots that were finishing cattle for them so that when they reopened their plants, uh, these cattle were now over fat. So they were docking these producers who couldn't sell them beef when they were closed. So these produ- these, these oh, feedlot so operators. There's, there's always yeah. a bully in every story. <laughs> well, and, it, and, it's the, and it's the cow-calf producer that always gets the short end of the stick. So, yeah, you know, right. Cargill, and then Cargill's, their prices went way up. After so they made I think five hundred million dollars uh, more profits in the COVID in the whole fiasco, uh, whereas you know feedlot operators were losing their shirts because they were getting docked for having over fat cattle because there was nowhere else for them to sell their animals and that's the where we've come with the whole industry is it's been so centralized, you know back mm. when my family homesteaded here there was a little abattoir in every small town. And there were little small rural economies where you sold your animals to the local butcher. And then he butchered them, and then he sold the meat to the little community. You know, that doesn't exist anymore. And is, are we also in a world where, from a regulatory perspective, that that, that can't... Because if you think about farm-to-table and local breweries and, like, so many industries are going back, and there is a demand, because back to what you said, the, ultimately, the consumer is in control. But is it my understanding that there is so much regulatory in place that it's, it, that's, not, that's easier said than done, that we can't just go, hey, that sounds great. Why don't we go back to that? It doesn't sound like, is that even an option right, well, right now? Well, I guess it has, has to do with how much... 
my husband had an interesting point the other day. You know, right now our food industry has become so centralized that, that you know, everybody and lots of producers and people complain that there's really only one market for us to sell our cattle in, in mm-hmm. Canada, and that's to the big packers like the Cargills and JBS of the world that control the market. But unless we start doing something different and look for alternatives, then we shouldn't complain. And so Dylan, my husband, and I put a, ra- a horse in the race about six years ago. We mortgaged the ranch and everything we owned to build our own on-farm, government-inspected um, abattoir and then cutting facilities near Calgary. Now, we're the only ranch we're aware of in Canada that's completely vertically integrated. That means awesome. we own the land, we own the livestock, we own the, the, the small slaughter facility that has a focus on quality and animal welfare so we can control all aspects. The cutting facility, the processing, the delivery um, all of that. Now we use a courier to do home delivery, uh, which has been wonderful because now I don't have to do it like I did for the first 20 don't years. Have to drive around and put a million miles on your car, on, 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 on your truck. On and, your and, I, and I did that for 20 years. Um, so yeah, so things have changed, but we have a horse in the race because we're trying to change that. But you're talking regulatory. Food safety is very important to consumers, and I agree with that. Um, mm-hmm. But they've made it so difficult like we had to you know direct market for 20 years before we had enough market to even contemplate building our own facility because it was millions of dollars and i mean we don't own it or the bank does right so of course i think yeah anyone in business can 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 appreciate the the risks and you know how much you have to put yourself out there to kind of change the stars if you will well and that's the thing and so what we've done is we've and and they call us you know pioneers in the whole direct marketing industry because we were one of the first ranches in canada to sell grass-fed and finished beef back in the 90s and uh and so now we've moved along this path and it has been the hardest thing i've ever done in my life i've worked my heart out and so is my husband and our family to get to where we are today but but we've actually broke trail so people can follow us but but it's easy to talk about. And, you know, last year during COVID, the Minister of Agriculture asked me to submit a prospectus about how we could change the meat industry to diversify it so that producers were not so beholden to the big players like Cargill and JBS. Oh, interesting, to try to break that. Well, because I think uh, COVID exposed a lot of, like, I think right across the board, especially just Canada in general, how at risk we were and from a slide, from a, can't even produce our own vaccines and our own masks, our oh. own supply chain around yeah. food. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that got brought, got a spotlight shined on them during COVID, which I think, uh, again, look, always looking for the silver lining was a good thing. <laughs> but, you know, where change really happens is maybe another conversation, which is you'll probably get to. Well, exactly. Well, that's right. So food safety really, so and, and this food security, I should say, is is really what was uh, brought to the forefront during COVID. And so I spent, you know, quite a bit of time writing this prospectus because what people don't understand in Canada, we have three levels of meat inspection. Um, we have the federal, which allows uh, people to sell across Canada. So the likes of Cargill and JBS, they're federally inspected by the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. Then in provinces, in Alberta and in Ontario, in Ontario, we have provincial meat inspections, so very stringent meat inspection regulations. So if you want to sell your meat to the public like we do, we have to get our meat processed in provincially inspected abattoirs. We can't use the likes of Cargill because they won't even look at me. Uh, there is one small uh, federally inspected processor in, I believe, in Lacombe, but I have to process uh, 50 beef at a time for them to even look at me, and I just can't afford that. So, because we're not that big a company, 
So that's it's a it's whole that the scale is what we're looking at. So in Alberta, we have federal meat inspection that's uh, managed or overseen by the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, and then we have provincial meat inspection that's overseen by the meat inspection branch, which is part of the provincial government. And then last year, they also went to an um, uninspected meat, uh, which I don't support for lots of reasons, but uh, more around animal welfare than, and food safety. But I'm sure that that can be tweaked because I think that that it's an important thing we need to look at is small, small scale. So and when, is that, would you say something like that? Is that a move in the, in the right direction? And again, food safety, obviously incredibly important, but that's that, that very small un, un, uninspected. Does that allow you to sell to your neighbor? Is like if somebody had a, had an animal and they, they had it butchered and they were able to do it. Is that what you mean when we're on small, like uninspected, that's correct. Like super small scale? Okay. Exactly. That is what we're talking. And I think so that maybe it is- just a hint of maybe the way it used to be. I grew up in a rural community. You got milk from one neighbor, you got eggs from another totally. neighbor, you got chickens. Yeah, that's just how it went. <laughs> right. So I think it's a move in the right direction. I think it needs to be tweaked from an animal welfare perspective. Um, I'll just give you an example because that is really what I'm, my, my whole focus is animal welfare and how an animal is treated uh, with the utmost respect. And some of these small producers, while their hearts are in the right place, when it comes to actually slaughtering an animal, some of them just don't have the experience needed. Mm, and they say, is, yeah. they go, oh, Colleen, it's, don't you think it's so much better for me to go shoot my animal out in the pasture so that it doesn't even know what happened to it? And I go, yes, absolutely, as long as you hit it. That's the problem, is that, you know, it doesn't matter how kind you are, how ethical you are, or how committed you are, if you wound that animal, that animal is going to run away from you. And that's my concern is how are we regulating how the animal is actually killed in a humane manner? So that is nebulous right now. And so that's my concern. Um, food safety is another I appreciate issue. wading into that conversation because that's the stuff that maybe, you know, individuals who haven't grown up around it, it's easy to shy away from that because that sounds, oh, I don't want any animals to die. That sounds terrible. That sounds like something I want to avoid, but I appreciate having a conversation about, well, this needs to happen. It is the way it works, but it has to be done right every time, all the time. Mm-hmm. That's And that is what our program is all about. And that is why we invested in, you know, um, my husband has taught low-stress livestock handling all over Canada and the northern U.S. for 30 years. He's recognized as a leader in low-stress handling. He's taught at universities, um, feedlots, big ranches, in all sectors of the livestock industry forever. Um, you know, not that I want to be a name dropper, you know, but... Um, I'm going to forget her name now. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> the lady who's the autistic lady who built all of the uh, uh, Temple Grandin. You know, she phones my husband. She's very well known internationally uh, for her commitment. And she phones him and they, and they talk shop about animal welfare. It's really interesting. So we're not... Well, I, I appreciate that position. And I think it's easy to create this anti-meat storyline when the next photo you show is these feedlots where it just looks nothing good, nothing healthy, nobody wants anything they care about to be in one of those places. What we need to do is also show that there is alternatives and we need to support it. And then again, back to, you know, influencing with your dollars as consumers. That's why I was, I was so excited to get you on the show, you know, because I have so many friends where I do get into debates of like, you know, the anti-meat or the the pro, the you know, the, the, the beyond meat like advocates. I'm like, whoa, let's have a conversation. But the stories they bring forward are always the negative versions of like you said, where animal welfare is not being like at the level that it should be. Uh, I agree. Well, and, and what's really important that people don't often think about about is not all things are created equal. And and I find that, you know, we're about two generations away 
from people being on the land. So you were raised on a farm. That's great. I wasn't raised on a farm. I was raised in Edmonton, but I was farmed out to my aunt and uncle's farm in the summers. And I spent- <laughs> You were every- still part of that generation where summers w- were doing X. Yes, I, exactly. I had a lot of friends that were like, oh yeah, every, sp- every spring it would be shipped off with the summer to do you know, bale hay or do whatever, the, whatever it happened to be. <laughs> Absolutely. Farm and stuff. so Farm I was very familiar with agriculture. And you know, and, and I'm 57, so I'm not a spring chicken. I'm not saying I'm old by any stretch, <laughs> but um, you know, I still know that when I went to, to school and I grew up in Sherwood Park- uh, outside of Edmonton, you know, almost every kid in my classroom had a family member that still lived on the farm. There was still a connection. We still had connection to it. Yeah. No longer is that true. Like when I go and do, and I, we used to do a lot of demos at health food stores and we'd talk to people about the ranch and we were the first ranchers a lot in the nineties that they'd ever met. And I mean, and that's 25 years ago. So now that's even gone another full cycle where, you know, kids, you know, when you go to the grocery store, it's this amazing facade you know you walk through the meat department and they and they use this terminology that i like the word facade you're absolutely yes it is a facade that's well said (laughs) you know you go and and no one wants to talk about the realities of food production and and when they go and they buy at the grocery store the kind of system that they're actually supporting and it's because of convenience you know and i agree i hey i understand convenience it's nice to have a one-stop shop where you can go to one grocery store and buy everything that you need from soup to nuts but you know, at the end of the day, that's not, if we're truly looking at sustainability, we have to stop and look at what that means. And, and anybody that's supplying a big box store, I guarantee that even if it's organic or whatever, who do you think, like when people go to the big box stores, and I don't want to drop names, and they're buying organic product, who do you think can supply those stores with that volume? I certainly yeah, only, can't. Only the large scale producers where things are being. No, we've absolutely, there's like lots of podcast episodes out there that talk about we've lost connection to our food chain. We've lost connection to what it means. And, you know, there's, you know, I've had, I've listened to some podcasts where they're like, like, if you're not willing to go out and hunt an animal, you shouldn't even be allowed to eat meat. Like there's some really extreme just for the sake of, right. makes, for, makes for good content. But, you know, when, like I remember as a kid here meeting someone from the city and they thought that chocolate milk came from brown cows. Like, oh, that's the most funniest thing ever, you know. But how far away, like how realistic is that? through our society right now probably pretty scarily so oh no it's true i still like we sell free range uh eggs here and i sell and depending on the breed of chicken i have i'll have green eggs i'll have white eggs i'll have brown eggs and people don't know that you know the color of the shell has nothing to do with the the nutritional content inside yet i still have people that go well i don't want to buy your white eggs because they're not as healthy as the brown eggs and i go because white bread is yeah because we learned about it in another context so we just apply it across the board now we're so we're willing to go down so many rabbit holes and and become impassioned about what we believe but oftentimes it's from a less than educated position around food just because not criticizing anyone but we're not connected to it that's right go out you know spend some time on the farm and that's not realistic for everybody but if we had more connection to it, they wouldn't be maybe disappearing at the rate that they have over the last 50 years. Well, and the small family farm is an endangered species. I mean, that is the reality. Yeah, and, that, I get, and that's unfortunately not a new phenomenon. No, it's not a new phenomenon. And as we go down this road, the average age of farmers, I believe, is 60. So, and many farm families, and I mean, and like I said, this this discussion is not about vilifying farmers. You know, the margins are so narrow in agriculture, like lots of people think, oh, farmers are rich. I go, no, 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 don't even go down that road. Farming's a tough business. Yeah, no, I, I yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, and so there aren't very many farm families that have children that want to stay in the business because they've watched their parents struggle. Um, 
you know, most yeah, months. I, I, you know, I don't know how many people I've known downtown that work a downtown job, but also still have the family farm kind of on the side because it, it, it's in the family and it's that heritage of what my wife works with someone. And, you know, every, in the summer he's gone on the week, or like he leaves on a Thursday night from, from his office job to go work on the farm, but he needs that office job to be able to maintain the farm. Like there's a broken, there's something broken in that chain. There, of there is something broken. I mean, 74% of farm families have one or both spouses working full-time off the farm to make ends meet. So imagine all your city uh, listeners there that you work full-time, but then you go home and you have another full-time job. Hmm. Uh, and that is the way it is in agriculture. And that's why we have, you know, endemic um, alcoholism, you know, drug abuse, everything is just, it's, it's very sad when you start scratching the surface of what is happening in the rural communities. And, and, and it's, these rural communities are just vanishing. And what's interesting, people don't understand is that all the money, rural economies don't exist really anymore for the most part. All the money goes to the big equipment dealers and the fuel dealers and the chemical companies and the seed companies. And all of those are owned by multinationals. And all that money is getting siphoned out of the communities. It's not staying there. Uh, and and so uh, to try to revitalize rural communities, we have to think about how do we reinvest in locally rural economies. And so to get back to my story about you know what I proposed to the Minister of Agriculture last year was that we should take you know Alberta has some of the most stringent provincial meat inspection regulations in Canada. So what they should do is work with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency to make a new level of inspection. So leave the federal, um, meat inspection for the likes of Cargill, who want to ship all over Canada, to the U.S. internationally, you know, export-driven market, but then change provincial meat inspection to domestic to allow me to sell my meat out of Alberta. Because right now, I'm not allowed to sell anything outside of oh, Alberta because you're you're you're, 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 you're border-bound. Because I'm provincially inspected, and that is because Saskatchewan and and BC have lower meat inspection regulations than we do. So when I met with this Canadian Food Inspection Agency, they said, you know, they they acknowledge Alberta and Ontario have excellent meat inspection regulations, but they go, but we're protecting Alberta from meat coming in from BC and Saskatchewan because they sell uninspected meat in Saskatchewan. Um, and so it's it's just it's down the rabbit hole we go. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the rhetoric I got from the government was it's just too difficult to deal with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency to try to change anything. So we're just not going to do that. And I said, oh, mm-hmm. great leadership. Woo, that just makes me feel warm and fuzzy. So um, <laughs> because I, you know, I could see that had we done that and gone towards, you know, turning, having a domestic meat supply, then lots of producers, they would have more markets to sell their livestock. They wouldn't it would just change, have- It would change the dynamic. Do you get a lot of inquiries from, from, from out of province? Like yes. Are, people, are you on people's radar, but you're not able to, to kind of put your product out there for them? Yes. And what's sad for me is that because we're on the radar of the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, they watch me like a hawk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For, uh, you know? No, nobody. Yeah, you don't want to be the example of like the sea. We caught you. We caught you. Right oh, now. and they and they've told me that they have phoned me, and I've had meetings with them, and they go, "Oh no, we phone you routinely using false names to see if you'll sell to us out of province." And I go, "Oh, thanks, guys. I really uh, appreciate." Sorry, it. I feel like there, I feel like there's better uses of time, but I get it. Good intentions. I want to be careful to throw around. Right. Um, no, I mean food safety is really important, and I understand. Yeah, hundred percent. I don't want to minimize that at all. No, and I follow the I follow the 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 law to the letter and people complain they go well you shouldn't and you should make an example i'm going yeah it's always easy to be an armchair critic 
you know, <laughs> yeah, to, but you're the one who has to, yeah. I'm the one that faces the risk, right? So, um, no, we follow the rules and we're, and we're good citizens that way. But, um, but it's very challenging when you have everything invested in trying to do the right thing and, and you get, there are so many barriers to doing that. So, which if you think of like the, you know, sustainability and the things that we're trying to focus on, like creating our natural habitats, like the grasslands, which doesn't get a lot of press in the same way that, you know, save, save the XYZ. And I think it's, I think they all need to be saved. So I'm curious, uh, you, you mentioned this last time we chatted, I'm taking a little bit of pivot back to the, to the, the, the you part of this, this podcast. Did you tell me, did I hear correctly <clears throat> that at one point before you moved onto the ranch that you were a vegetarian? I was. Yes. Uh, so just curious, I can't, because that is a debate that is a big, that's a tough one to win when you've got your friend who's a vegetarian as I'm eating my delicious TK Ranch steak. Um, curious, that what was that transition like for yourself? Was it just something that that was a phase or that you actually, it sounds like someone who does her research said, no, actually, you know what? I think that this not only needs to be part of my life, but, you know, and then you you, you went all in to be, told, to be, be blunt. <laughs> no, I, I went all in. So I was very young. And I was diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer. So that's where my my, 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 I started with the whole food industry. And I didn't know anything about food. So I come from a broken home. You know, we ate processed food growing up. My mom had to work and support us. And, you know, that whole sad kind of sad story from the 70s. So um, we did not eat well. And um, as a result, I ended up getting very sick. And in the process, I discovered... Lots about our food industry. So when you're put in that situation where, you know, your life is on the line, um, I I ended up going to a place, it's kind of a long story, but on Vancouver Island where I ran in, and I didn't tell anybody out there that I was 18 at that time, and and I volunteered at an outdoor education center, and the owner of of that place ended up having cancer while I was there developing cancer. No one knew I had cancer. But he went to a place in... um, in California called the Virginia Wheeler Anti-Cancer Clinic. This is in 1983. This is a long time ago, back when really organic didn't exist and there was really no no awareness around food. Um, yeah, and, and the correlation between eat the, like, the, it was always just felt like, well, you got this hand of cards and food. You didn't have the control or maybe the ability to influence your own health, which is the way we embrace now. Exactly. And uh, long story short, when this fellow came back from, uh, being at this anti-cancer clinic, and he had pancreatic cancer, and they'd given him a uh, basically a death sentence. Um, he came back totally different. He had changed his diet uh, to one back then; it was called a macrobiotic diet, and uh, he wanted a, someone to go on the diet with him. So I was there for eight months, and I went into remission um, in that process. And he lived for eighteen months when they'd given him literally six weeks to live. So it was very sad when he passed. When I found out he passed. But that started me on my food journey. And one of the things they taught me is that if you're going to eat meat, do not eat meat that was commercially grown. And that was back in the 80s. And they said because a lot of the products they were using to speed up the growing process um, actually affected cancer cells in a human body. So this is a long, long time ago. So I became a vegetarian for health reasons. And so when I came back to uh, Edmonton after that, I actually went was going to start started university and I got involved with um, uh, the environmental movement and in that process got to know a lot of uh, vegetarians that were vegetarians for animal welfare reasons um, also. So I became a vegetarian for, for my health, but also then started learning about the whole uh, 
uh, commodification of the food system then. Mm-hmm. And so I was a vegetarian up until I met my husband. And so he was really interesting. So he goes, oh, I understand where you're coming from. But I'm I, I'm doing things a bit differently, you know. And, and of course, when I went to university, ranchers were really vilified. Uh, they yes, were yeah. they were they were called you know destroyers of the earth. They were using cattle to destroy this and that. But you know what? The reality is is that cattle are a tool that ranchers use to harvest sunlight. A lot of people go what? But that is the truth of it. <laughs> so you broke it. You broke everyone's brain there for a second, Colleen. <laughs> right. So cattle eat grass, eat things people can't eat, and convert that into nutrient dense beef so they're harvesting sunlight um and uh, and producing a very very healthy product so but cattle are a tool they are not the they shouldn't be vilified because um, cattle just are they just do what they're told they just go where they're where they're told and they're they're the it's people that control how that animal affects the environment so um, it behooves us, no pun intended, as ranchers to manage <laughs> well, well, that. Well done, well done. <laughs> to manage that uh, those animals in a way that is sustainable. And that's really been the focus of, of how we've done it. And my husband has, has been very, very involved. He was very involved with the Center for Holistic Management now in Savory in the 80s and, and really was instrumental in bringing uh, holistic management to Canada to, to help producers learn about sustainability and managing um, the land base in a way that did look at the triple bottom line. And that was, again, a long time ago. That's 30-some years ago. But he, well, yeah, before triple bottom line was a trendy was a trendy thing to use sometimes as a marketing tactic, let's be ex- honest. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and so when I met my husband at an environmental movement, actually meeting, I should have meeting, um, he was speaking about holistic management, and I was kind of like, wow, here's, he's all... You know, I'm from Edmonton, guys in Edmonton don't wear cowboy hats. And so when he came up, he was, you know, dressed like your quintessential cowboy. And I just kind of laughed <laughs> at him. But uh, <laughs> he was determined to marry me and uh, and he was, was successful. I appreciate the persistence of, 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 of a farmer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, and that was a while ago. So here I am, 30 on years into the process. and uh, And we've really built a life together. And I've taken my skills around... Um, really understanding the importance of conserving some of the last tracts of endangered grasslands and, 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 and creating a model where we are doing that by, by using cattle as a tool to harvest the grasslands, to keep the, health, the grasslands healthy and biodiverse for other species that live here, keeping the water clean because um, that is also a big part of it because we have huge ducks unlimited dams on the ranch here. So we have a ton of riparian habitat uh, and just creating a model that allows consumers to understand there are alternatives and they can support uh, products that are raised with a, a, a real focus on making sure those animals are treated with complete respect right from birth right mm-hmm. to the end. Uh, and, and a quality and product that does take into consideration how the environment is also being affected by those practices. Oh, I really appreciate taking the time to understand the interconnectivity of it all and thinking about it in, in real terms, like in your community or on the edge of your, you know, like this is, you, you're 45 minutes away from Calgary. You're, you're like, it's in our backyard, but yet not on people's radar. So curious, your perspective, obviously you're on a 30-year mission. Uh, the mission will continue, hopefully. Is there a way back from this? Like, you know, we've got the feedlots, we've got the 
drive the prices down as low as we can. But we've got people now that I believe more than ever are becoming more aware, more informed, sometimes misinformed, and like that's a that's a journey and sometimes a perspective. But how do we how do we come back? And if you know if we decided tomorrow the universal we to say no, we're going to go sustainable. Yes, meat is going to be part of our of our diets, and it needs to be accessible to people. With the model that you're using, can that be done at scale? Can we go back? Is it the community by community? Like, do you do you have hope that we can fix this thing? I do have hope. I have hope because you know what what uh, has been interesting for me through COVID is the number of farm families who have all of a sudden woken up and said, you know what, I've got people calling me that want to buy beef direct for me, mm, and awesome. I've never I've never even eaten my own beef because they just ship it all and they go to the grocery store too and buy it, which is very interesting. Um, and so I do <laughs> believe that that there I do see a shift happening now can you know people say oh we can't grow beef for the world um, using your model that's not possible and I go well you know I, I think that we have to start somewhere and we have to start looking at how can we do things more sustainably and and do it locally don't try to save the whole world look in your backyard and see how you can change uh, yeah, and get one your community at a time. one community at a time and how can you change what you're doing, whether it's how you, how do you deal with waste? How do you deal with water use? How are you, you know, are you using Roundup on your lawn in your in in, in Calgary? You know, um, how are we starting to think big in in but 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 act locally, think globally, act locally? That was the big thing in the '80s, right? Is um, yeah, it's still still true. It still it holds is, up, right? It is true. People go, oh, we're just you know, the beef industry is destroying the the rainforest. Well, grasslands are more endangered than rainforest. And people don't realize that. And, uh, and well, you know, grasslands, grasslands, I don't feel I've ever had a champion. You know, we're obviously rainforest. It's, it's an easy thing to get behind. And it's also, you know, we have to remember it wasn't long ago that that wasn't a thing either. Like right. somebody decided to make it a thing and then it became on our, on our radar. Like, you know, it, it always takes a champion or somebody to start getting this understood. And, you know, I've been hearing, I don't know, maybe it's also because it's on my radar and also because I'm kind of tuned in or your brain starts seeing what you're, what you're thinking about. I see a lot more podcasts which are talking to sustainable, uh, you know, farms in the US, California, down in Georgia. So it feels like this is getting a little bit more play and I feel like that there are a group of consumers that are searching this out and thanks to you know thanks to the internet there's a lot easier now for somebody, you know, in Alberta I know you've got your border bound, but it's still a lot easier for somebody to to know you exist where maybe, you know, you were only relying on word of mouth, you know, not that long ago. I totally agree with you. Um Word of mouth has really been beneficial for us, but the internet has changed all of agriculture. You know, I still run into people who tell me that I'm airing our dirty laundry by even talking about it because communities are still, rural communities are very, very conservative. But I have seen a real shift in the last couple of years where people are starting to talk about some of these issues. And, um, you know, I just say, you know, you guys pick on consumers and you say they're uneducated. And I go, yeah, you're very wrong. I said the World Wide Web, the internet has changed um, the way people view agriculture. I said, you can't, I mean, it has shone a light on agriculture that's never been shone before, and we can't go back. And educating, because, you know, often I'll go to conferences, rural conferences, and I'll get uh, targeted, which has been common in my world for 25 years. And, and I'll just, <laughs> Colleen, I, fe I feel you have broad shoulders. <laughs> I do. Yes, I'm a strong, I'm a strong woman. I'm not, uh, I, I'm not concerned about what people think about me. 
Um, and so, but you know, I just if, say if people ever underestimate farm women, uh, like I just think of my grandmother, the quintessential farm, like like what you described about, you know, yeah, no, never, never underestimate, or you will, you will, it will not end up well for you. <laughs> I I totally agree with you, but I just I just tell them that you know what, this is an opportunity. You know, it's not a crisis in agriculture that that consumers have now are now starting to learn about how their food is raised. And and again, this is not to vilify farmers. Farmers are doing what they're told. You know, they have. You know, they have landmen from these big ag companies that go to the farms and and tell them this is what you need to do to maximize production and maximize yields and in and and you know, so so it's because their margins are so narrow, you know, that's what it's all about is, you know, they gotta squeeze every penny out of every acre that they have. And and uh, and so a lot of these fancy inputs are where they're at and they just you know, to go backwards, they'll talk they'll tell me that I'm going into the dark ages and that I'm crazy and and I'm like, yeah, well, yeah. No. It's a challenging. It's a challenging cycle. Our, our addiction to cheap this and low cost of that, but yet at the same, on the other side of the coin, we're demanding more quality and starting to understand the impact of what we put into our bodies. Like the the whole food chain. Like there's a lot. I just I feel, and maybe it's just the people I t- to talk to. There's a lot more awareness about like, well, what is it? Where does it come from? And I want I want to make good choices, but maybe I don't know. I I'm anxious to move away from the us versus them and more like let's collaborate and know that it's a journey. It's not gonna we can't flip a switch here. And I agree with you, and that's why you know I work. With, like I have spent my countless hours helping um, lots of these farm families direct market. I've never charged them five cents because they don't have that knowledge anymore. They've lost it too. You know, small, like I said, our rural economies vanished 50, 60, 70 years ago. And, yeah, and no, so yeah. it's, it's the whole, everyone has to change and we all have to start thinking about how can, you know, if, if you can sell your beef for 25% more than you're selling it to Cargill by just, by virtue of just going direct to consumer or more, you know, isn't that a good thing? And that's what I tell people. They go, you know, because they think I'm giving the beef industry a bad name by doing what I'm doing. And I just go, you know, I started doing this because we couldn't make a living. Right. You know, we were at a crossroads back in the 90s. You know, the cattle market had dropped where our, our cattle were worth 50%. Our equity was 50% of what it was two weeks prior. And the bank was phoning and saying, how are you going to make ends meet? You know, and I had three little, we had three little kids. And I mean, for me to get paid doing what I was educated for, I'd have to move to Red Deer, Calgary, Edmonton, or pack groceries for eight bucks an hour. And that was my only option. Which is option. part of what pulls, is what it's, part of what's devastated the, the rural communities, like you said, which yeah. it wasn't sustainable. And for so, for so many reasons, yeah, 50% two weeks later, no, that for anyone who doesn't understand the agricultural world, like you do all the work and you can just have a bad season, which could mean so many things from weather to prices to whatever the case may be. Exactly. And so that's why we started direct marketing because we thought, well, we can't, if we have no control over what we are being paid for our livestock, which is what it, exactly where we're at, then we need to take control of what we're getting paid for our livestock. Mm-hmm. And that is how we started all those years ago. And I mean, it was a hard road. I mean, cold calls and, and faxing and there was no internet and there were no cell phones. So you can imagine it was a totally different world when we started. So from that perspective, from a business perspective, has it become more sustainable for you guys? Like I, I know, I know be, running an operation is never easy, but has it, has it, has it improved? You mentioned the, obviously the improvement through the internet and even the last year of COVID when people started to, you know, just people cooking on their own and becoming more aware, like COVID changed so many things for people around food, I feel. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, just, I've always been kind of um, interested in technology and how it can make my life easier. And certainly, you know, the process of, delivering and all the things that I did personally for so many years, because that's the other thing people don't understand is that, you know, people think, oh, direct marketing is so easy. Well, it's really not. 
because, um, you know, we had to find a small abattoir that would even work with us because we wanted to make sure we could control how our animals were being processed to make sure they were treated with respect. So, you know, we were already wingnuts in the 80s, yeah, For right? you to deliver on your on your brand promise and what's also important to you, you had to have influence all the way down, like basically almost to, basically until it gets into the hand of the consumer. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was just step one. The other thing people don't understand is because our industry, the whole industry has moved towards export-driven and federal, there were no places that I could store my meat because they were all federally inspected, so I wasn't allowed. There were no trucks that would transport meat for me because they were all federally inspected and they couldn't transport anything for me. So there was no what's called supply chain for anybody outside the federal system when we started. So we had to create an entire supply chain to get our product from the ranch to the consumer. So we had to buy our own refrigerated trucks. We had to build our own freezers to store stuff. We had to you know, do all the deliveries ourselves because there was just nobody that could do it for us. Because that, yeah, you got you guys went all in. We had no choice, and so um, it was not like you know if I would have taken my beef and just dropped it somewhere and said goodbye to it, which is the way it is right now. But you lose control, and and then you get you lose control of everything, including what you get paid. So. Which is the big, which is the big one. Yeah. Well, certainly glad to hear that consumers are getting more aware. And again, I love technology because what is it? What does it increase for so many of us is accessibility. You can get to things now in a way you couldn't before. And you know, I someone mentioned your name to me. Boom! I was on the internet within five minutes. I'm on your site with the ability to purchase from you. Like that's an amazing feature. Not not to turn this into like whoa technology, but if you think about like traditional businesses or businesses that have run away, run a certain way for a long time, the ability for technology to disrupt them right down to the way we buy our food. You know, I'm, I'm excited about that because I think it is putting more power into the consumer and the consumer is becoming more educated all, all the time. And well, hopefully this episode also gives people a different perspective of also a little bit of heritage and being proud of what's here. What's here. Like Alberta is such an amazing province. We have so many great resources. We just don't always know about them. I agree. And we have a lot of agricultural producers that are so committed um, that need you know, options that they don't have right now. And so that's the limiting factor in our food system is that it's not just consumers, it's it's people who are on the land too that don't have yeah, a lot bo- of options. Both sides of that whole, yeah, back to that whole chain of, it's all interconnected, we're all joined at the hip in one way or another. Exactly, should- I totally agree with you. Colleen, I've loved our conversation and love love your passion. And uh, you know, uh, this is your world. You live it, breathe it, and you, and you speak about it so so educated and passionate. I really, you know, kudos to the work that you're doing. And again, I, I will blatantly like your products are fantastic. Dealing with you guys has been great. You know, from just a customer service perspective, there's you guys have been top notch all the way. And I'm always excited when that uh, that nice box shows up on my step, all insulated and frozen, ready to go, and goes into my freezer. And then my next couple of weeks are great. Thank <laughs> I know you. I, I'm always I've always got something to look forward to at. Uh, at dinner time. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Obviously, TK Ranch. You Google it, check it out, go online. Is there any other way if someone wants to reach out or learn more? Well, definitely our website has lots of good information on it that they can learn from, you know, talking about animal welfare. There are lots of links, lots of, lots of uh, you know, information they can learn about how, what makes our program unique. I mean, that is the best way, definitely, is just to go onto our website. They can certainly reach out and talk to me. We, uh, If you go to our Facebook Facebook page, which is TK Ranch Alberta, also Instagram, tons of videos and footage of the ranch if you want to learn more about that. Um, I'm posting every day online about the snowstorm we had yesterday or day before yesterday <laughs> to uh, the, the trials and re- realities of rural life. <laughs> exactly. Or today I posted pictures of our of our first heritage breed sows that um, had 11 piglets because they're all raised outside on pasture. Um, so just see pictures of that and exactly what we do. We we try our best to be completely transparent. I think it's one of the most important things in agriculture is to is to be totally 
uh, upfront and honest with consumers in what you're trying to accomplish so that they feel comfortable and can gain a level of trust. I appreciate that. Hey, Curious, I never, I never asked just for context. How many, uh, how many head of, like, how many cattle do you guys have typically uh, on the go at one time? Well, we have 325 mama cows on the ranch. And, be- okay. and because we, um, you know, our program is pasture to plate, so we'll calve out those cows. And because it takes about 30 months to finish those animals on grass, on pasture, because we're not giving them any. I appreciate you know, the context where 14 to 16 months was the feedlot timeline right. versus 30 months. And I appreciate grass-fed versus grass-finished and some of that nuance that, you, that it's good as a consumer to dig in, make sure you understand what, you're, Absolutely. what you think you're getting. That's right. So grass-fed is not necessarily grass-finished. Um, so it's really important to ask those questions. Uh, so then, then the whole process is, uh, boy, I lost my train of thought there. We got off on the tangent. Sorry, uh, how many head of how ah, many animals? Thank you. Yes, so, sorry, I, yeah, I sabotaged you. On yes, that uh, that's all right. So it takes uh, thirty months to finish. So we have about eleven hundred head of cattle on the ranch. When you consider we've got um, last year's calves and the year before's calves, uh, and then we're processing the year before's cattle right now. So when you think when you add all those together, it's between eleven and twelve hundred head of cattle here. Oh, that's a that's a that's a real that's a real number. <laughs> it is yes, but it's funny when you just think, oh, they go, oh, you only have three hundred and twenty-five mama cows. That's not very many. And I go, yeah, well, you know, we also can maintain control and retain ownership is the word they use in the industry, right? To the consumer, so from pasture mm-hmm. to plate, it's very pasture complicated. Yeah, and and like you said, the. It, everybody thinks with, when they look at our program, it's so it looks so slick. You know, they go online, they place their order. It's delivered in this beautiful box and an insulated liner. Uh, the amount of work that it, that goes into that is unbelievable. Yes, nothing ends up in that box by accident. I really, I do, I do appreciate that. It's it's so easy as a consumer. Again, look at me. Oh, look, it's all conveniently wrapped and frozen in my in these little bags. And look, that was so easy. Yeah. But not forgetting how much work it takes to go from you know those thirty months to that you know that delicious experience of of healthy local all the things that check all the boxes for me. And I and I know are important to a lot of people in in our province for sure. Well, and we are a small operation, so um, often people tend to mistake us for Amazon. So they think I have a 24-hour customer service line and, you know, people that are working 24 hours a day filling orders so that if they place an order today, it'll be ready by 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. So we're still a small family operation. It's our, my husband and myself. So have, pa- have patience, folks, as well. Yeah. I know the first time I went to order and it like, won't be till the following Friday. I did have a moment of like, well, what do you mean? Like, why not tomorrow or why not the next day? And I'm like, okay, d- dial it back, Tyler. This is real. This is local. But yeah, I do appreciate that you said that. So I, it, it's taught me very quickly that I plan ahead now. That's all. It's, it was a pretty simple adjustment in my mindset. But you're right. Uh, we have been we have been trained by a certain platform, which you know you named. You know, when are we competing with Amazon as businesses? Unfortunately, always because the consumers. You know, I can order my roll of toilet paper and it'll be here by the time I push the button. <laughs> Exactly. You know, that doesn't is, there is a trade-off when you get those extra pieces of quality. So I think it's good, it's good to clarify that. Well, and it's just like something as simple as working with a local courier that does same day delivery and, and that they drive out to our facility, which is just east of of Chestermere there where our little store is. And they pick up once a week because they charge me, you know, $90 every time they drive out there just to pick up the boxes. And make it realistic or else the poor, or else the consumer then has to bear that cost or you have to bear it on margin and that neither of those work. Well, no, exactly. So what we've done is we just have a um, order fulfillment model, for lack of better terminology, that tries to keep it as cost effective for everyone, including our customers. So we're doing our very best. As a customer, I, I, I appreciate that, Colleen. <laughs> 
Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for the conversation today. Uh, like I said, kudos and high fives for the great work that you're doing. And uh, I encourage people to reach out, check it out, make make an order. Just give give it a try. You 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 cannot you cannot go wrong. Well, I I really appreciate your interest and support. It's podcasts like this that help to start to change the world a little bit at a time. Oh, uh, thank you. I yeah, I, I love doing it because I get to be cool people like you, and we've got an audience that loves to like be be curious. So that today was a great. You filled up a lot of my curiosity today. So th- thank you so much, Colleen. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Tyler, for having me. 